Some of you may know who this gentleman is. Some of you may not know who this gentleman is. If you don't, don't worry. There's no extra points for knowing, and there's no demerits for not knowing. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is Craig Biggio. Craig Biggio played for the Houston Astros from 1988 to 2007. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2015. He's the only player in baseball history to have at least 3,000 hits, 600 doubles, 400 stolen bases, 250 home runs, and he was hit by a pitch 285 times, which is the second most ever, not the first. Craig Biggio played his entire career with, with the Astros, and that wasn't such a big deal back then. It is now in free agency and things like that. The Astros, you may or may not know, are playing in the World Series against the Washington Nationals. They just tied up the series last night. It was a pretty exciting game. I have to confess that since the Braves did their usual postseason flame out, I'm kind of ambivalent about who wins. Uh, if you're really a Houston Astros fan, I apologize. But I'm just not that into it anymore. So what does Craig Biggio have to do with Psalm 34? What? This is not baseball trivia. Uh, maybe you'll get this question at Johnny's if you do Tuesday trivia. And that'll be an answer for you. Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I'm going to tell you. Craig Biggio was a utility player. And what that means is that he played a couple of, actually three positions, really well during his career. He started out his career as a catcher, and then the Astros wanted to extend his career, and so they moved him to second base because catcher's knees wear out after a while, and they don't last that long. And then he played catcher, I think, for 10 or 12 years. And then towards the end of his career, they moved him again out to center field, and that's where he ended his career. Well, Psalm 34 is like the utility player of the Psalms. It does a couple of things really, really well. So the first 10 verses is a psalm, traditional psalm of thanksgiving and praise and remembrance. It's a personal testimony of what God has done in David's life. But then the last 12 verses are more like a proverb, so it's instructions and wisdom in how to fear the Lord. There's warnings about the fate that awaits the wicked. There's praises for what God does for the righteous. Psalm 34, it's not one of the more, more well-known psalms, like Psalm 23 or Psalm 51. Kent is going to teach on Psalm 23 next week to close out our series. And I know we're supposed to be teaching on our favorite psalms. I think that was Mark's intent. I have to confess, this is not one of my favorite, but it is definitely in the top five. And it is in the top five because even though it was written thousands of years ago, it contains truths that are as relevant to us today as they were to David's original audience. In fact, all of the psalms contain truths that are as relevant today as they were when they were composed. So David opens his psalm with a declarative statement. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David is saying, no matter what circumstance I find myself in, I'm going to bless and praise the Lord. Now David lived a life that we can only imagine. 
<coughs> excuse me, he went from being a shepherd to being a king. He killed a giant. He spent years hiding out in the Judean wilderness, living in caves, running from Saul, who was trying to kill him. He conquered nations, committed horrific sins. He was forced to flee from his own son who was trying to take the throne and then later go to battle against that son to retain his throne. He amassed great wealth, made plans and preparation for the house of God, wrote poetry that is still being read millennia later. Right, we're looking at it right now. And was called a man after God's own heart. If you were to plot David's life, the highs and the lows would be about as far apart as they could. And David is saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. When I am so high and I'm dancing in front of the ark of God as it's coming into Jerusalem, I will bless and praise the Lord. When I am walking up the Mount of Olives with my household because my son who came from my loins wants to kill me, and there's this crazy guy throwing rocks and cursing me across the valley, and my general wants to go cut his head off, I will bless and praise the Lord. How can David say that? What was David's secret? Well, David knew how to look beyond his circumstances. And when David looked beyond his circumstances to the God who was behind those circumstances... When David pondered God's greatness and God's goodness toward him in, in everything, and David looked at God as he is, David found that God was altogether worthy of being praised. I think that's where we get tripped up as believers. At least I'll speak for myself. I know it's where I get tripped up as a believer. So I look at my circumstances, either good or bad, and I sometimes forget to look at God. Or sometimes we'll look at God and we'll have a different view of him. We'll view God as either this angry, grumpy deity who's just always kind of mad at us or displeased with us, or God is this butler or a genie who's supposed to do everything that we want him to do when we want him to do. And, and both of those carries risk. So if God is this, always this grumpy person who's mad at us, we kind of tend to doubt his goodness. And when God's just a butler or a genie, when the first time something bad happens and God doesn't do exactly what we thought he should, in the moment he did, he should have done it, then we're disappointed in God. One of the benefits of studying the Psalms is that you get to see a picture of God as he is, and it happens in poetic language. And that language stirs up your hearts and stirs up your minds. You see God who is a righteous judge, who is the king of all the earth, our refuge, whose words make wise, who answers his people when they call, who forgives sin, who shakes the earth, who laughs at princes and nations. That is David's God, and it's our God as well, and he is altogether worthy to be praised. I think another reason we don't, we have a hard time praising God, is we tend to practice this fake Christian happiness that we're so good at. And one of the reasons, I think, is that we don't know how to lament biblically. 
What I mean by that is we don't, some Christians believe, I'm not saying any of you do, some Christians believe that it is wrong to acknowledge when bad or hard things come into your life. That it's somehow a lack of faith to acknowledge those things. It's, it's not. Now dwelling on those things, that may be a lack of faith, but acknowledging those things is not. If you read some of David's other Psalms, David laments injustice. He laments the things that happened to him. He uses words like, why do the wicked prosper? And how long, O God, until you answer? And will you be angry forever? Those are honest reflections of hurt and disappointment in David's life. But David doesn't stay there. So often the very next word is, but I will praise you. Or but you rescued me from the pit. Or some other words of praise. David could say what he says here, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth because David had an honest relationship with God. David acknowledged the hurts. David acknowledged the disappointments, but he looked past them to God and to God's character. Paul says something similar in Ephesians, excuse me, Philippians 4.13. It says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, David was able to praise God in every circumstance because he acknowledged the bad things in his life, but looked to God the same way that Paul did. And we can do the same thing as believers. Next, David is going to invite the congregation to join, to join him in magnifying and exalting God. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So we just sang a song, and when I'm done, we're going to sing some more songs. And so it should be our purpose when we gather together to magnify and exalt the Lord. But that shouldn't stop at 12 or 12.15, whenever we're done in corporate worship. And we exit the building. We should continue to magnify and exalt God in the things that we do and say when we're not in this building together. There is a, there is a concept in uh, political life. It's called message discipline. Some of you may be familiar with that. I think maybe it was a military term too, although we didn't exercise it all that much. What message discipline means is say you're a politician and you have a message you want to talk about, let's just say it's tax cuts. You want to, your message is that tax cuts are a good thing, which they are. So that's the message you want to get out and you want to keep hammering on that. Tax cuts are a good thing. You don't want to talk about tariffs or immigration, although at some point you may have to talk about those things. But your core message is tax cuts are good. So all your materials want to say tax cuts are good. Every speech you give, you want to work that in. Tax cuts are good. You're focused on getting that message across. Tax cuts are good. Well, there's a similar concept in the church. Right? Our core message is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That salvation is a free and open gift to anyone who will take it. And that message is the same no matter where you're at. It's the same in Topeka, or China, or Nigeria, or Argentina, or France. 
Anywhere in the globe that there is a believer, that is the same message. And so what impact might it make on the world if every time they encountered a Christian in any one of those areas, that was the core message? We were guaranteed they were going to hear that message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, it's not that there aren't other things the church can and should talk about. There are. We should talk about injustice and we should talk about all those other things. But those should always be subordinate to the message, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that message is needed more, I don't know if it's more today than it ever has been. It's always been needed because of the human condition. But our culture is moving towards paganism or barbarianism or whatever ism it is. I'm not quite sure yet. It's moving at the speed of light. And it is leaving behind it, in its wake, casualties. Just this past week, I don't know if you saw the news, 200 yards from this building, a woman tried to kill herself. I don't know the details. I don't know the story. I don't know what hurt she experienced. But the message is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We have the words of life. As believers, we have the words of life that the world desperately needs. And we need to be disciplined about our message and use those words because they are life to people. There we go. I went too far. Sorry. Okay, David is going to shift gears here. And he's going to give some personal testimony. So we heard Steve's testimony, which was great, and I hope it encouraged you as much as it did me. And I'll say, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I think one of the best things we did in instituting membership was making you guys tell us our testimonies. And that has just been, far and away, such a great thing. Because you get to hear how different people came to faith you get to hear how God rescued this person and rescued that person and what God is doing in their life. And it, let me tell you, it is and was and has been faith affirming. And that's what David is doing here. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David wants his hearers to understand how good and gracious God has been to him so that their faith will be strengthened, so that their faith in God will be encouraged. David says, he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. If you read First and Second Samuel, and you read accounts of David's life, that was a lot of fears to be delivered from. David had a crazy life, and David kept God pretty busy delivering him. But David says, it's interesting that David says he was delivered from all his fears. It means that not only was David delivered physically from harm, so David delivered him from the hands of Saul from being killed. David delivered him, if you'll remember, when he was going out to kill Goliath, God saved him from that. And what did David say? God has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. So God had his hand on David the whole time. God delivered David physically. 
But God also delivered David from what I think was his greatest fear, which was the fear of death and the fear of being separated from God. Two weeks ago when Bill taught Psalm 51, David says, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. There was, there was angst and terror in that cry. That was David's greatest fear. Not that, I'm sure he was afraid of getting pinned to, the, pinned to the wall by Saul, but his greatest fear was being separated from God in death. And David knew, because God had made it known to him, that he didn't need to fear that any longer. Listen, as believers, we have even more assurance than David did because we have the revelation of Christ. If you know that you have put your faith in Christ and you ever have doubt or you ever have anxiety, I want you to open your Bible and I want you to go to Romans 8. And I want you to read it and read it and read it and read it. And I want you to marvel at the grace of of God in Christ towards you who believe. And it's 100% guarantee that if you do that, all fear and all anxiety will dissipate. It's just an astounding chapter of God's love towards us. David's going to say, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And the angel of the Lord would be a good study sometime. We're not going to do it today. But anytime the angel of the Lord shows up in Scripture, he's synonymous with God. There are a couple of sort of ambiguous passages, but for the most part, he's synonymous with God. And David's original audience would have understood this to mean that not only does God himself encamp around individual people that fear him, but he encamps around a nation that fears him. So they would have understood this to mean that God, who is more powerful than the nations of the, the gods of the Philistines or the Hittites or the Amorites or anybody else, God himself is encamped around us as a nation to be a bulwark and a hedge to those nations around us that want to destroy us. If you read the Old Testament, if you read Exodus, as they're going in to the land, God says, I will put the terror of you into the people. When the spies went and hid out at Rahab's house, one of the things she said was, the terror of you is all around us because we know, we saw what God did to the Amorites. We saw what God has done. God himself put terror of the Israelites into the nations. And you see God fighting for Israel. So if they were faced with a superior enemy, God himself, he did that several times with the Philistines. God slew 180,000 Assyrians, just killed them. That was the angel of the Lord. So David's, David's original audience would have understood that God himself is fighting for us. And we have that same we have that same assurance as believers. Going back to Romans 8, Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There is no one 
No thing more powerful than God. There is no authority higher than God. It is God himself in the flesh who delivered us from the kingdom of darkness, who gave us new life, who made us sons and daughters. Just as David says, the angel of the Lord was a bulwark against Israel's enemies, and the Lord Jesus is against ours. You guys didn't know that David was a revival preacher, but he gives here what we might term an altar call. So David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is a call for the congregation to experience God for themselves. David said, I've been telling you about God. I've been telling you about how wonderful he is, about how he redeems me from every pit, how he's been good to me, how he's rescued me out of every trouble. And you can know that God for yourself. Believe God in his promises. Put your trust in him and you'll see for yourself that everything I've been saying about God is true. David says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Not only is the person who puts their faith in God safe from punishment, but they enter into a different type of relationship with God. The Old Testament talks about God calling out a people for himself. And he uses tender language about Israel. He calls them the apple of his eye. A people for his own possession. A special possession. Again, going back to our position as believers. We possess every benefit of sonship, and we will for all eternity which makes us the most blessed of all people. No, here's where we switch over. Here's where David switches over. So this is verse 11. And from here on out, it's going to be more like a proverb than what is traditionally associated with the psalm. David says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That sounds remarkably similar to simpler to Proverbs 1, which was written by David's son, Solomon. And it makes me wonder if Solomon wasn't in the palace sometime and heard dad using this kind of language. And so when it was his turn to write his Proverbs, he incorporated that language because it's something he had heard and something he had, had experienced. Or that could just be fanciful speculation on my part. Unknown. So da Then David says, he poses what's, uh, seems like a rhetorical question. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Well, if I'm raising my hand, I want to love life and see good. And I think David would assume that the rest of his audience does too because he goes right into how to do that. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now David isn't talking here about how to earn salvation. This isn't a how-to. Do these things and you will be saved. What David is talking about here is how to live with people inside and outside of the community of faith in a way that honors God and promotes peace. 
Romans 12:18 says, "If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all." Well, the next logical question is, well, how do I live peaceably with all? And David's going to tell you right here. You couldn't do much better than this advice. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That is an increasingly difficult thing to do in our cultural moment that we're experiencing. Because it seems like it's increasingly impossible to have a rational conversation with people. Everything turns into this giant argument. It seems like we're stuck in a perpetual two minutes hate. So if you've read Orwell, you've read 1984, you understand that reference. If you don't, the two minutes hate is from his book, 1984. And what would happen, the citizens of Oceania would gather together at a certain time every day and on the screen would pop up this face of a traitor to the party. And wherever they were at, people would just get worked up into this frenzy of hate. So they'd be screaming at the screen, and they'd be throwing books at the screen, and they'd be throwing shoes at the screen. And all this stuff would go on. People just absolutely losing their minds for two minutes. And the protagonist of the story, Winston Smith, he described, he described the two-minute hate, and he said the worst thing about it was that even if you didn't want to participate, even if you had gone into the meeting not wanting to participate, is that you were caught up in this thing. And that in just a little bit, despite your good intentions, you were screaming at the screen too. You were throwing things at the screen too. Until the, and then the face of Big Brother would come on, everybody would calm back down, then they'd go back and do their own thing. Now Orwell couldn't have possibly have anticipated Twitter or Facebook. But he is remarkably uh, prescient because it sounds a lot like Twitter, an average day on Twitter or Facebook, right? Orwell, like David, was an uncanny student of human nature. Orwell, Orwell understood what people were like, either left to their own devices or provided the wrong stimulus to do the wrong thing. And David put these warnings in here via the Holy Spirit because he knew that we needed them. David understood what was in the heart of man. The church is not immune from this. I hope none of us act this way, online or offline. But the church isn't immune for, to this. If you go to a comment section on a Facebook post or you go to a Christian website and read the comments, which I suggest you never do, there are people who claim to be believers who are mixing it up with the best of them. And they're using scripture to justify why they're telling that person that you're a so-and-so and so-and-so and and this is what should happen to you. But it's not only for online speech. How do we speak to our friends and neighbors, our spouses, our siblings, our roommates, the checkout person at Dillon's or Hy-Vee or wherever it is you shop? the person that gets in front of you at the gas line or the person that that cuts you off or the person that's got 20 items in the 12-item line. (laughs) That one actually might be a little justified, maybe. (laughs) No, do not do that. 
Here's why I harp on that. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about the message of reconciliation. And he says that we are ambassadors of we are ambassadors of Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And so what we do as individual Christians has the ability to affect the entire body of Christ. What one of us says can affect all of us. If you talk to any millennial who has left the faith, what they'll say is, well, I've left the faith because I had this bad experience with this judgmental and hateful Christian, and all Christians are like that. Well, how did they get that? Undoubtedly, some of it is just sensitiveness and hurt feelings, but they had an actual experience with an actual person who professed Christ, Christ, who was harsh, or who was mean, or who wasn't loving, who didn't do what David said, did not keep their tongue from evil, did not keep their lips from speaking deceit. And it turned them away from the faith. Now there's always going to be enmity between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Until one day God is going to put all of his enemies to death with a word from his mouth. But if we're going to offend, let it be with the truth of the gospel. The gospel is offensive enough. Let it be with the truth of the gospel and let it be presented in as loving and gentle a manner as possible. All right, David is, in the last few verses, this psalm takes a somewhat darker tone. So David is going to contrast the fate of the righteous and the fate of the wicked. And he says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Since the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That is such a comforting word. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Listen, when, when life has just beat you down, when you're tired, when you're want to be defeated when you've been betrayed or whatever has happened the Lord is near to the broken hearted you haven't been abandoned God may seem like he's distant but he's not he is right there when you feel lost or alone God is right there God saves the crushed in spirit David's saying something that Jesus is going to affirm centuries later. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By contrast, God is totally opposed to those who do evil. It says the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth so that they won't even be remembered any longer. We have an aversion in our day and age to talking about the fate that awaits the wicked. It offends our modern sensibilities. We think talking about judgment and God's wrath gives God a bad rap, makes him look petty or vindictive or vengeful. David doesn't share our aversion. David gives an honest account of the fate that awaits the wicked. The memory of them will be blotted out from the earth. 
So we should worry less about God's reputation. God can take care of himself. He doesn't need us to PR for him because sometimes we do a really bad job of it. We should worry less about God's reputation and more about telling people the truth, less about temporarily offending somebody and more about that person's eternal destiny. We're almost done. David says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. It's not clear from some of the commentaries I looked at if this is a messianic prophecy, although it certainly was true of Jesus that not one of his bones was broken. But commentators were all over the map on this one. Some said they were, some said they weren't. So it's not clear if it was a messianic prophecy or if it's just another example of God's goodness towards those who love him. That God delivers him out of every trouble And that God keeps all his bones. But David is still contrasting the fate of the wicked and the fate of the righteous. He says, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The CSB translates this as evil brings death to the wicked. So the thought there is that it's the wicked's own Evil is their own refusal to turn from God, to turn to God, excuse me, that causes their death. Not that God is unrighteous when he judges. Not that God is unmerciful when he judges. God is altogether just, altogether righteous when he judges. But it is people's own sin which condemns them. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. So the righteous is us, right? If we're ever worried that people are getting away with things or we're getting a bad rap or God is not fair. Look at this verse. Those who hate the righteous, those who hate God's people, we are so identified with God that those who hate God's people hate God and that they will be condemned. It's just another example of God caring and loving his people. So that he is going to condemn those who are against them. Okay, David ends this psalm on a high note. And I want to end it too. Because you guys look like you're depressed and need a group hug. (laughs) So David ends with the truth of the gospel. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So this is the truth of the gospel. For those of us who have taken refuge in Christ, we have an eternity in God's presence to look forward to. We don't need to fear that we will be condemned because Christ is not only our refuge, but he is our righteousness. And that is truly good news or should be. So let me speak to those who may be without Christ today. And I don't know who you are. I assume that we have some in this audience that don't know Christ. If that describes you, the good news for you is that the scripture says today is the day of salvation. 
you can leave here today as one of the redeemed. With your sins forgiven, with a new life and a new destiny. And it's pretty simple. All you have to do is you have to agree with God that you have sinned against him and claim Christ as the only remedy for that sin. Fly to Jesus and take refuge in him. And all the blessings of new life and eternity will be yours. If that describes you, I don't know who it may, but if that describes you, would you either grab me after service or grab one of the elders or grab the person sitting next to you and ask them, nothing would give us more pleasure than to talk to you and explain how you can have new life in Christ. Nothing. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, would you stand with me? And we're going to recite the words of Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. I pray that, you say it with me. <laughs> According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God.